Some of the phrases in this reading today remind me of those I've seen on fridge magnets. For example, my grace is all you need. But the context of Paul needing to hear those words from God is that even though he had a great resume, which you can read in the preceding verses, and natural talent, he needed power that comes from outside of himself to live well in ordinary and extraordinary situations, as do we. So this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ for when I am weak then I am strong the peace of God be with us old Dan Tucker was a fine old man washed his face with a frying pan combed his hair with a wagon wheel and died with a toothache in his heel a toothache in his heel. What in the world does that mean? Well, my beloved questioner, I found out a few years ago when I was prepping uh, for a snowbird show and putting some old-timey music together, and I sang this song, that a toothache in the heel is arthritis. And I guess, I don't have arthritis, but I guess that's what arthritis feels like toothache in the joint so old dan tucker for all of his fire hopping and his billy goat riding and his sinning and his drinking came to the end of his life for lack of a celebrex or an advil god rest his good soul i thought of old dan tucker this week because i thought of achilles i thought of achilles the mystical hero after whom the tendon running up the back of your heel is named because i have been ruminating on this text from second corinthians chapter 12 Old Dan Tucker and Achilles, one a mountain drunk and the other the greatest Greek warrior of antiquity, met their demise because of a point of weakness in their bodies. They were both pierced in the heel. Now you've heard about Old Dan. Here's the story of Achilles. His name at its root means sorrow or to grieve or to suffer. And that is what Achilles inflicted on his enemies. Yet it is also what would become his own experience for himself. It was thought that Achilles was indestructible, invincible. Just look at Achilles as portrayed by Brad Pitt in the movie Troy. He, he plays the part superbly. He's gorgeous and ferocious and he's ripped and young and he is everything a Greek hero should be. Of course, all this perfection was made possible, according to the legends, because Achilles was baptized, dipped into the river Styx as an infant. It made him immortal, indestructible, except for one spot. And you know it. 
The one small part of his body that remained all too vulnerable, all too human was his left heel, where the person who dipped him held onto him and put him beneath the water. The boy becomes a man. The man becomes a warrior. He lays waste to any and all who resist him. He fights men, nature, the gods, and in seething rage lives up to his namesake. He dishes out sorrow and suffering and grief, and the world trembles before him. And then, a single stray arrow, a lucky shot from the bow of Paris, strikes Achilles in his left heel, that one tiny spot of unprotected vulnerability, and it kills him. And such has been the warning ever since. You have an Achilles heel. That is, no matter how strong you think you are, no matter how together you have it, no matter how well you think out every scenario and prepare for every possible outcome, we each have that spot where we are susceptible, where we are defenseless. We have that place in our lives where we are unprotected, where we suffer, and it is a place of sorrow and pain. For some people, the Achilles heel is their past. They made some awful mistakes. They hurt others. They hurt themselves. Forced into making impossible decisions, decisions that continue to haunt them. And every time the thought of this past comes up, it still hurts. It still pierces through the soul. It robs them at times, even of their present, robs them of their future. For others, the Achilles heel is their health. You maybe have a disease, an affliction. You've lost your ability to go and do and function as you please. You are trapped in your body, and it fills you with grief, with rage, with loss. For others, it is addiction. Addiction to drink, to pills, to meth, to porn, to sex, to food, to work. And every time you think you've grown beyond this dependency, this compulsion, it shows itself up again, and you are back in the cycle of crashing and confessing and correcting. But you know it's always going to be there. For another, it is a relationship that's all tangled up and codependent and dysfunctional. It's an adult child that you cannot fix. It's the constant weight of what someone else did to you, hurt you, how they abused you. It's a struggle with your sexuality. It's your mental health. It's anxiety. It's depression. There are a thousand ways that a human being can suffer. And while for the most part, we put on our armor and we go out to do our duty in the world, Every person still has a place of pain, that toothache in the heel, that Achilles heel that threatens to undo us. Paul had a different phrase and a different approach. The phrase that he uses, you heard in the text today, a thorn in my flesh. The word is scolops. It was a barb under the skin a stake driven right through his body as if he had been impaled, a crippling, limiting, frustrating weakness. He had been pierced, skewered, as it were, by something or some set of circumstances that prevented him from being all he thought he could be and doing all that he wanted to do. Now, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh, his Achilles heel? The pain that he experienced? Well, the church has speculated about it since Paul first wrote it down. And some say it was a temptation to quit the ministry. It was hard to put up with all these crazy church people. 
<laughs> and their problems. John Calvin, the great reformer, was convinced that this was the cause of Paul's pain. Luther said that it was the constant persecution, the jailings, the beatings, the trouble from the outside. The Catholic tradition is convinced that it had something to do with sexual temptation, and aren't the Catholics always coming to that conclusion that it has something to do with sexual temptation? And still others say it was regret or remorse over his past sins, particularly that he had aided and abetted in the murder of Christians. All of these are good guesses. But some scholars say it was about physical pain. He likely had a sickness or a disability. Some say epilepsy, some say malaria, some say depression, but more likely than, than anything is said he had some kind of problem with his vision, his eyesight. The traditional images of the Apostle Paul show him as a small man, stooped, large, bulging eyes, eyes that did not serve him well. And on two occasions, particularly in the book of Galatians, he makes reference to his eyes being bad. A secretary, a scribe, usually wrote Paul's letters as Paul dictated those letters. But at the end of the Galatian letters, he decides to sign his own name. Go look at those last few verses. And when he writes his own name on the letter, he has to write big kindergarten Crayola-style letters in order to see it. Look what great large letters I have written with my own hand, he says. Those who receive the letter knowing what his condition is. So rethink Paul's traveling and speaking and writing ministry as a man who can barely see and whose eye condition was extremely painful. The best we can tell, scholars say that Paul traveled more than 12,000 miles by foot, donkey, boat in his career in the most primitive conditions. He visited three continents, dozens of countries, hundreds of towns. By the numbers, he wrote the majority of the post-gospel New Testament and is the one chiefly responsible for the Christianization of Europe. It goes without saying that outside of Jesus himself, Paul was and is the most important and dominating figure of our faith. And while he was bold and courageous and seemingly had boundless energy, it also appears that he was nearly blind, suffering from this disease and in constant pain. And it does make you think, what could Paul have done if he had not suffered this condition? And that's exactly what Paul was thinking. He says in verse number eight, three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. He pleaded with God to free him from this devilish, tormenting, ripping pain. He wanted to be set free to reach his highest and his best potential. But the answer was always no, no. No, no. And we've been there. Every person I know that is a person of faith has prayed and begged and bargained with God for some kind of relief, for healing, for rescue, for God to take away some nagging impediment that can't be shaken off, that we can't make well on our own. To quote C.S. Lewis, we go to God and we find the door slammed in our face. And all we hear is the sound of the door being bolted and double bolted on the inside. But why? Why is Paul afflicted this way? Why won't God remove his weakness? He answers, to keep me from becoming proud. Wow, that's Paul's conclusion. Paul had been the recipient of, 
if we went back and read the previous two or three chapters before this Second Corinthians 12 passage, Paul had been a recipient of, the, of all these heavenly visions and revelations. And he talks about uh, the heavens opening up and God communicating with him directly and God catching him away to the highest of heavens. And I would imagine that if you had had that kind of experience, that kind of insight, you could become fairly arrogant fairly quickly. You could become a person that would be impossible to live with, terribly conceited. So this thorn in the flesh, while it's not from God, is used by God to keep Paul from being an arrogant religious snob. God was saying no to Paul's request for Paul's own good. Coach John Wooden was remains the most successful coach in NCAA history, men's basketball. And he was more than a coach. He was an incredible man. He taught his players how to play the game, but more so he taught them how to be men, taught them how to succeed in life, and his teaching ranged from his pyramid of success, the attributes that he felt that people needed to succeed, to giving lessons for hours on how to put on their socks. Because details matter, he said, and because if you get blisters on your feet, you're done playing. He was a disciplinarian, prescribing exactly what each player could eat before a game. He would throw people off the team if they grew a beard. He would not allow anyone's individual number to be retired because he believed so strongly in the concept of team. And one of his most famous sayings goes like this, Talent is God-given, so be humble. Fame is man-given, so be grateful. Conceit is self-given, so be careful. And then he would tell this story to accompany those words. Wooden was won 10 national championships at UCLA. No one's ever come close. And when he won his first one, it was 1964. And in 1964, he was in Kansas City, Missouri. He had won on Holy Saturday, the Saturday before Easter. On Saturday night, he wins the national championship. He celebrates. The next day is Easter, and he's still going to go to church with his wife. Even the celebration in the national championship wouldn't keep him from that. So he's standing outside the hotel, Kansas City, Missouri, thinking about the previous night, thinking about how great he was, thinking about how great his team was. And while he is standing there on the sidewalk, waiting for a cab to take him to church, a single pigeon flies overhead, and you know what happened. Pooped squarely on John Wooden's head. As if John Wooden's head was the only target anywhere in the entire state of Missouri. And he said about that, I think that was probably the good Lord letting me know, son, don't get too carried away with yourself. And that lesson stuck for the rest of his career. It stuck for the rest of his very long life of nearly 100 years. You know, God can do anything except He can't do much with the self-sufficient. God can't do much if we are full of ourselves. There's no room for Him. How can we be dependent upon His ability when we are depending upon our own? How can we be everything God wants us to be when we are still trying to be all we want to be? How can we boast 
about the power of God in our lives while we boast about our own power. The human heart does not have enough room for both. They are incompatible. So God's no to Paul's prayer is for the purpose of Paul saying yes to something far better. My grace is all you need, Paul says, that Jesus, he heard Jesus say, my power works best in weakness. So Paul welcomed his weakness. He embraced his weaknesses as the path of dependence upon and surrender to God. And you know, this is not the way of the world. Look around. Look around in these recent days of the pandemic. It's not even the way of most of the church. It's all about me. It's all about my rights. It's all about what I want. It's all about overcoming. It's all about climbing higher. It's all about winning. It's all about my accomplishments, my brand, my resume, what I have done, what I have built, what I have achieved. And sometimes we'll tip our hat to God and say something like, oh, God has just blessed me so much. But even that is self-confidence. It's all self-centeredness. It's all compensation and showmanship and projection using God and God's name to boost our own egos and to gloss over the places where we know we are broken and where we know we are weak. We would rather hide these weaknesses. We would rather be rid of them to lead the life we want to live as unattainable as it might be, instead of letting these things lead us to a true life of fulfillment that we can actually have if we surrender. So how do we do this? How do we welcome our weaknesses instead of resisting them? You'll have to turn in next week for the rest of that story. <laughs> 